Okay, we are starting chapter 5 today. And let's just start reading in Hebrews from verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. The Greek in verse 2 that is translated to deal gently or possibly in your translation it may say have compassion is not the word sympatheo that was used in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 to describe Christ's sympathy for us. That word is sympatheo is more sympathize as in been there done that kind of a sympathy that Jesus has for us. The word that is used here in relation to the high priest is metropatheo. And metra, you recognize from like metric, okay, measure, it's that kind of thing. It means a measured sympathy. It means not too strict, but not too tolerant. So it means that the high priest is not going to be too severe nor too tolerant with those who are ignorant and going astray because he knows what it's like to be human and he knows what you are capable of and what you aren't capable of. So of course, you know, this would bring, this imagery would bring to mind for these Hebrew Christians something very fresh in their mind, and that would be Ananias, the high priest who crucified Jesus. He was extremely harsh high priest. He tortured Jesus and then handed him over to be killed. Well, this, you know, Ananias does not seem to fit the picture that is painted here of a gentle and compassionate high priest. So what's the problem? Well, we find out what the problem might be in the very next verse. In verse 4, no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. You see, when God set up the office of high priest, he set it up to be an office where he calls that person to be high priest. But Ananias and these particular Hebrews lived during a time when the high priesthood could be bought. And families actually bought that title because of the political power. There was huge political struggle over this. In fact, that's where the Samaritans came from. Um, they had split off and built their own temple and had their own high priests. Well, Ananias was the high priest who presumably whose family had bought this priesthood because that's how it was handed from person to person at that time. There's, there's a story in Numbers chapter 16 that talks about an Israelite from the house of Levi named Dothan. I mean, Korah. He had two friends, one named Dathan and one named Abiram. These three men were some of the men who were wandering around in the desert with the Israelites back during the time of Moses. But those three men coveted Moses and Aaron's power. Look at Numbers 16, verse 1 through 3. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? 
is this such a modern problem? I mean, do we see this all the time or what, right? Well, when Moses heard this, he fell face down because he knew that at that point, Korah and his friends and those 250 Israelites had just stood up on their hind legs and challenged the living God. And Moses knew what was going to happen. So, did Moses try to justify himself to these men? That, that is just like such a natural reaction when you're in a leadership position and this happens. You want to explain it to them. You want to make them see. And he didn't. You know, that is the Lord's job, not yours. Jesus did not defend himself. Moses did not defend his right to be a leader. God made him a leader. God can defend him. So here's what happened. He told those men to bring censers with incense. Those are those things the priests swing, you know, that, that, that smoke with good smelling incense. Bring censers of incense and meet him at the entrance to the tabernacle in the morning. Well, when they had assembled, the Lord told Moses and Aaron to step aside because the Lord was going to destroy all those three men all the 250 leaders with them and all the Israelites. He was going to wipe them all out. But Moses pleaded with the Lord to spare the Israelites and only deal with the ones who had actually claimed the priesthood for themselves. And the story continues in number 16, verse 26. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram came out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to their tents. Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death, and suffer the common fate of all human beings, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, to remove the censers from the charred remains, and scatter the coals some distance away, for the censers are holy, the censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Hammer the censers into sheets to overlay the altar, for they were presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be a sign to the Israelites. Now, there is a ton that you could tease out of that particular story about the Lord, about us presuming, about holiness, lots of things. But the point we want to pick out here is that the priesthood is sacred to the Lord. 
leadership roles in the body of believers are sacred to the Lord. And priests are chosen and appointed by the Lord. Leaders, pastors are chosen and appointed by the Lord, not by themselves or even other men. Look at Hebrews, back to Hebrews, verse 5. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's a quote from Psalm 2, and that's a psalm we looked at earlier and already established was a messianic psalm. Jesus himself was insistent that he had been appointed by the Father. Look at John chapter 5, verse 36 through 40. I, this is Jesus speaking, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work the Father has given to me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. Remember how the God the Father testified to Jesus' veracity, to his truthfulness because by giving him the ability to do signs and wonders and miracles as a man. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Now those are pointed words that we especially should pay attention to. Just because we're here studying the scripture diligently does not mean we belong to Christ. The scriptures don't save you. <laughs> we have to come to Jesus himself for salvation. We must know him in order to possess eternal life. And there's nothing magical about this. We just have to be honest with ourselves and with him. Go to verse 6 in Hebrews. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's a quote from Psalm 110, another psalm we looked at earlier and determined was a messianic psalm talking about Jesus. Both of these quotes were quotes where God's talking about Christ. In the first one, God says Christ is his son. And in the second one, God says Christ is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, wait a minute. I thought priests were in the order of Aaron. Where did Melchizedek come from? Well, Melchizedek is a priest mentioned very briefly in Genesis chapter 14. There had been a war among the local city kings. This is back during Abraham's time. And one of the kings had actually captured the city of Sodom, looted the town, carried off Abraham's nephew Lot, along with his household and all the plunder. So Abraham went after that king with his own army. Abraham was extremely powerful. So he went off to rescue Lot. He caught up with King Ketuleomar, who had Lot, defeated that king, rescued Lot, brought him back. And this is where we pick up the story. Genesis 14, verse 17 through 20. After Abram returned from defeating Ketuleomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. 
And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. The story of Melchizedek in three verses in the Old Testament. That is all we know about him. But here it's saying that Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So these must be very important verses. What do we know about Melchizedek from these verses? Well, actually, the writer of Hebrews is going to spend a whole chapter on that in chapter 7. So we're going to save a little bit of it. But what we need to look at here is in verse 18. It says Melchizedek was a king and a priest. His name literally means king of righteousness. He was king of Salem. You recognize that word, okay? It's also is presumed he was king of Jerusalem, okay? That that's one in the same place, okay? But it his his title is king of Salem, king of peace. That means king of peace obviously. His name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And it also says, in addition to being a king, he was priest of God Most High. Thus, when the prophecy in Psalm 110 says that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, it's saying he is a priest and a king. That's the significance. So we have the most exalted of all high priests. Not only is he the greatest of priests, but he is royal, a great high king, the great high king. That should be enough to make us afraid to approach him with a request. But the writer of Hebrews turns right around and reminds us that God intends for our high priest to be approachable. Hebrews, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now, the English translations of this passage give the impression that Jesus was asking to be spared from crucifixion. That's what it sounds like he's asking for, that he wants to be saved from death. And we all do remember the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, let this cup pass if at all possible. But the original Greek gives a little bit different flavor. The phrase from death does not use the word apa which would mean from the edge of death. That's the from, okay? Apa would mean save me from the edge of death. Instead, it uses the word ek, which means out of. What he's saying is save me out of death. He was praying to the one who could resurrect him. He was not praying, let me skip the cross, although I'm sure he would have loved to do that. But what he was praying was save me out of death when I'm there. And it says that his prayer was heard because of his reverent submission. It's a very biblical concept that God chooses who he will hear. The Psalms are full of David's pleas to be heard. The Old Testament prophets warned Israel over and over that they have to repent or God would turn a deaf ear to them in their day of suffering. James 5.16 says we should pray for each other because the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. 
The flip side would seem to be that the prayer of somebody who doesn't care about God might not be so effective. Okay. So God chooses who he's going to listen to and how much he's going to listen. And the writer of Hebrews says Jesus' prayers were heard because of his reverent submission. And again, the Greek gives a little color to the phrase that you don't get in English. Some translations you may have that it says because of Jesus' godly fears. They actually put the word fear in there. The Greek word here is not phobos, which would be the normal Greek word for fear, but it's the word eulabia, which is the word for a cautious taking hold of, a careful and respectful handling. So the flavor here is that Jesus was heard because of his careful and respectful humility, his reverence. Okay. So you can actually see this respect and carefulness in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, verses 34 through 36. Jesus says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's the respectful handling. Okay. Look at verse 8 in Hebrews. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So even the Son of God suffered, he su and he suffered before his death on the cross. He learned obedience before he ever walked the road to Calvary. We forget how fully human he was. As a child, he had to learn and grow. Look at the passages from Luke chapter 2. Verse 40 says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 51 says, and Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, his parents. Okay? And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, like us, learned how to be obedient. He had the same choice we do to be a stiff-necked people or to be a people that delights in every word that comes from the mouth of God. He made a choice, just like we do. Go back to Hebrews, verse 9. And, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, here again, we see the reference to Jesus being made perfect. It's not like he was dropped on earth perfect. He, was he became perfect the same way we become holy. It's just a series of choices that we make. The word perfect is teleo, and it means to complete, to accomplish, to consummate, consecrate, finish, fulfill, make perfect. It means bringing a person or thing to the finish line. It means reaching the goal. Having reached our goal, Jesus became the source of our eternal salvation and became our high priest and high king. And how blessed we are to have an intercessor like that before the throne of God. But do we despise this blessing? Do we ignore our salvation? Are we making any move to learn to be obedient ourselves? Are we making any effort to follow in his footsteps and reach the goal set before us? I think the message translation puts the next few verses in Hebrews very well, starting with verse 11. 
I have a lot more to say about this, that is the comparison of Christ and Melchizedek, but it is hard to get it across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. By this time you ought to be teachers yourselves, yet here I find you need someone to sit down with you and go over the basics on God again, starting from square one, baby's milk, when you should have been on solid food long ago. Milk is for beginners, inexperienced in God's ways. Solid food is for the mature, who have some practice in telling right from wrong. Notice in verse 13, what exactly we are supposed to be able to teach each other. We're supposed to be able, by now, to teach each other God's ways. Are we able to teach each other God's ways? Have we practiced telling right from wrong? Can we explain it? Or are we only able to parrot what we've been taught intellectually about the basics, the introductory concepts of Christianity? I want you to take your Bible and turn it over face down for a moment. We'll, we'll turn it back over in a bit. What helps make a good teacher effective? Is it their intellectual ability? Well, that helps, but how many of us have fallen asleep in class, especially with the really smart professors? <laughs> you know, it isn't their book learning that reaches into our hearts and changes us, is it? It's their experience and their ability to make that experience come alive for us. Jesus taught with simple little stories. He drew word pictures, analogies that were easy for us to remember, and he would use those stories to communicate deep truths that we instinctively recognized in our spirits. I remember my grandfather saying, never ask a farmer who's failed how to farm. That's great advice. As teachers, we need to be successful. Christians. We need to be active followers of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit should be abundant in our lives. And I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about you, okay? Each one of you is a teacher. You, each one of you needs to grow up from milk to meat and be able to teach and help other Christians around you. It's not just evangelizing non-believers. We are called to help each other. We should be mature and healthy in spirit. We should be humble, knowing that it's only through the grace of God and the mercy of Christ that we are brought daily out of sin and temptation. And that last phrase, practiced in telling right from wrong, that last phrase in that last verse of Hebrews chapter 5, that we should be people who have practiced real experience in telling right from wrong. We need to be the kind of Christians who have risked when you look for a pastor or a teacher, you want to look for someone, someone with band-aids on their knees and not just band-aids from praying, band-aids from walking and falling down and getting up again. You want to look for someone who is living, trying to minister to believers and non-believers, somebody making themselves vulnerable in order to build shelters and mark trails along the way of life. And that takes us to chapter 6, but don't turn your Bibles over yet. What I want you to do is just holler out for me some basic elements of Christianity, just basic, basic Christian beliefs. What, if we were going to describe Christian milk, what would that be? Belief. 
Belief in Okay. Belief in God. Okay. Of what? Okay. Study the Bible. Okay. Give me one or two more basic basic elements that make Christianity different from anything else. What what do you have to be know or believe to be a Christian? Admit sin. Sin and appease the way Okay. Admit sin and that Jesus saves, basically, is what you're saying, right? Okay. One more. You have to make a commitment that Jesus is your Savior. Okay, a commitment. Yes. Make a commitment. And what does that commitment look like? To any physical manifestation of that commitment? Your, your works. Okay. Commitment. So we'll say commitment and changed life. Yes. Is that what you're trying to say? Okay. Okay. All right. Those are great. All right. Now, let's look up the answer. <laughs> Turn your Bibles back over. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Woohoo, we got one. Faith in God. Woohoo, we got two. Instruction about baptisms. We missed that one. The laying on of hands. We missed that one. The resurrection of the dead. We missed that one. And eternal judgment. We missed that one. Well, we got some of them. And God permitting, we will do so. Well, this is a very interesting list. Let's look at these basic elementary teachings. Repentance. Notice that it doesn't say repentance from sins, which is, of course, the basic elementary teaching in the Gospels and the Epistles. Instead, the writer says repentance from dead works. The phrase dead works doesn't appear in the Gospels or the Epistles nowhere in the New Testament except in the book of Hebrews. Many translators try to explain this by saying that the way they translate it is that we need, that we need to not lay again the foundation of repentance from works that lead to death, is how they put it. Well. That makes it consistent with the Gospels and the Epistles, but I think that translation is inaccurate because the Greek says repentance from dead works. It doesn't say leading to in there anywhere. It says the works are dead. So, you know, just as a general rule, this is distressing to me. I, just because a verse is difficult to understand or it doesn't seem to fit with everything else you know is not a good reason to change it. Okay? It's a good reason to ask God to explain it to you and then put it aside and wait for when the time comes that he explains it to you. So I think that there's a deeper meaning that we miss by changing the translation here. So let's see if we can tease it out. First off, the writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians who were raised as Jews under the law. 
So perhaps that's why he says repentance from dead works, instead of the more common terminology of repentance from sins. Let's look at the only other place in the Bible that this phrase occurs, and that's also in Hebrews. It's in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now what that's saying is that under the law, men's under the Old Testament law, men's sins were atoned for, cleansed, purified by animal sacrifices and the sprinkling of the blood of the animals. And although there was, you know, we've talked about the annual day of atonement that they had, but they had sin offerings. They had these sacrifices every day. If you happened to commit a sin, you went and made a, and brought a sacrifice to the high priest immediately, to the priests immediately. So this verse makes a contrast between what it calls the purification of the flesh under the law and the purification of the conscience under Christ. You see, under the law, Men's sins were cleansed in the eyes of God, but the men weren't changed. Under Christ, Christ cleanses us in the eyes of God, but even more importantly, he changes the inner man. He cleanses the inner man. He changes us on the inside, and look what it says happens. Christ cleanses us from dead works, so we are fit to serve the living God. We've been studying the importance of works in the ongoing life and growth of a Christian, and this work verse shows that the works we might have done before we were Christian were empty works, dead, without the life and purpose and direction of the Holy Spirit. Just as we were dead spiritually, so were our works. Well, flip it over. What a powerful concept. On the positive side, just as we are alive now, so are our works. The very things we do, our actions, are inhabited and empowered by the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's part of the basic definition of Christianity, which in a way we actually did get. Okay, When we talked about one of the basic elements of Christianity is a changed life. What's next on the list? back in uh, Hebrews at the beginning of this chapter. Well, next on the list is having faith in God, first of chapter 6. Well, that's def definitely a basic teaching. I don't think I need to expound on that. We, we get that part, and that was on our list. But then it says understanding various baptisms. Well, that's weird. Usually Christians talk about being baptized as a single act. What does it mean, various baptisms? Well, again, a lot of commentators and teachers wiggle around this. And the way they do it is they say, well, since the writer of Hebrews was talking to Jewish Christians, he was really talking away about moving away from the ceremonial washings of the law. Well, to make that meaning work, you have to go all the way back to the very first part of verse 1, where the writer says we have to leave the elementary teachings about Christ. And these teachers who say this is all about Jews leaving Judaism and becoming Christians say, well, that, that doesn't really mean teachings to Christians. That really means 
elementary foreshadowings of Christ in the Old Testament. I think that's an awful thin net to walk out on. <laughs> okay, I think the whole context of chapter 5 and 6 is talking to Christians about their Christianity and about the fact they're still stuck in the basic milk part of Christianity and haven't gone on to the meat. I don't think it has anything to do with the old law. Okay, That's just my opinion. So that gets us right back to needing to understand what does it mean various baptisms are part of the milk of Christianity? So let's look at the baptisms in scripture. The very first baptism, believe it or not, is in the Old Testament. And it, we don't find out it's a baptism till we get to the New Testament. So let's look at, at the, the place that gives us the key. I think this verse is the key to baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 4. I want you to know, brothers... That our fathers were all under the cloud. He's talking about the, you know, the cloud that the Israelites followed by day. And all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the same spiritual drink. So what made the crossing of the Red Sea a baptism into Moses? Well, from the description here, let's make a hypothesis. Being of scientific mind and living in a scientific age, it looks to me like the elements of this particular baptism were that the spiritual door has a physical representation. In, in this case, the physical representation of this baptism was they now lived under the cloud and had passed through the Red Sea, right? That that physical act has a spiritual meaning, spiritually they passed from one state of being, which was slavery, to a new state of being, right? Which is freedom. And that the baptism, although it was ministered individually, they individually walked across that Red Sea, was somehow tied to community and a common leader. And that the baptism is named after that leader, okay? Or it's identified by the name of that leader. That's how you can tell one baptism from another. In this case, the Israelites were baptized into a community led by Moses and characterized by Moses, where they all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink from his hand. Thus, the shorthand description is they were baptized into Moses. Okay. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting concept. So it begs the question, why? Why were they baptized into Moses? What was the purpose of this baptism? What was the purpose of forming this new community? Well, right at the very beginning of the trek through the desert, three months to the day after they had left Egypt, the Lord told them why. And that's recorded in Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So from this, we can see 
that the purpose of the baptism into Moses was to form a nation. Before, they were just a bunch of slaves. They were baptized into, into Moses and under his leadership became a nation. That baptism, its purpose was to call the Israelites out from the world to, before, to be formed into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. So if you look for this pattern of events and meetings, meanings, you might find several other baptism events in the Old Testament. For example, remember when the first generation of Israelites had finally died off and the second generation of Israelites finally crossed the Jordan? The entire first generation has died except for Joshua and Caleb. Okay, Even Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, they're all dead. They've died. Moses, therefore, is no longer their leader, and it's time for a new definition of community. Time for a new baptism. Look at Joshua chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. They're standing on the shores of the Jordan River, which is in flood stage at this point. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you all your enemies. So it came about when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests, carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground, in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So Joshua called the 12 men who he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So this could be called the baptism of Joshua, couldn't it? You recognize all the earmarks. It certainly marked a transition in the nation. 
a transition in its leadership. In fact, it seems to confirm that one important element of baptism seems to be a change in leadership, a change in direction. The floodwaters of the Jordan parted, and the nation passed from its old life into its new life as a witness to the Gentiles, so that the Gentiles might come to know the Lord. But notice that the new direction and new leadership are closely connected to the former purpose. In the baptism into Moses, the Lord said his purpose was to call them together as a holy nation, a nation of priests. Now he reveals his purpose in doing that. Now he tells them they are to be a witness to all the nations of the world that the Lord is mighty. So you see how it's a growth, a honing of purpose, a deepening of the original plan, which really hasn't changed at all. God is just revealing his plan to them in stages. As they grow and mature in their walk with him, he shows them the next step, takes them through the next door. Always he is with them. And always the new step is just a more intense walk along the same path. The same purpose that God gave in the very beginning. Here's another example from the Old Testament that seems significant. It occurs during a period of civil war between Israel and Judah. The prophets of God are being persecuted and killed. And the Lord has raised Elijah as a great prophet and witness against the wicked rulers. And now Elijah has come to the end of his life. And the time has come for his student, Elisha, to take on the role of prophet and witness. This is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 5 through 15. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha, that's the student, and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master, Elijah, from you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And Elisha, the student said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle, that's just a piece of cloth, folded it together and struck the waters and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now it came about when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And Elijah said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it came about as they were going along and talking that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Then Elisha took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? 
And when he had struck the waters, they were divided here and there. And Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. So this seems to be a more personal baptism, doesn't it? But it's a baptism nevertheless. Elijah, the master, crossed the Jordan on dry ground, ending his ministry. His student, Elisha, was given a double portion of his spirit, crossed back over the Jordan to begin his role as leader, prophet, and witness to Israel and Judah. So I hope that you can see that baptism is, at its core, the leaving of one way of walking with God and entering into another. Whether it's for a people or a nation, it means entering into a new community with new leadership. So fast forward nearly a thousand years to the time of Christ. Jesus' cousin John is roaming the countryside preaching about a new kind of life and he is performing a new kind of baptism. So let's see if we can identify the elements of baptism in this new baptism. Look at Matthew 3 verses 1 through 6. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So obviously the old life was to be repented of and exited from. And, a new, and the new community that they were to enter in was to be the kingdom of heaven. That's what it said in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the new leader was to be none other than the Lord himself. But notice that John did not claim to baptize people into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he said. He, he, he also did not claim to be the new leader. Instead, John's baptism was a baptism of preparedness. The prophecy quoted from Isaiah is what gives us that insight. John's baptism changed people's direction and prepared them for the next baptism. John's baptism was several years before Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It was not a baptism that ever purported to cleanse people from their sins. It was a baptism in which people recognized and admitted their sins and were forgiven of their sins. It was a baptism where people turned away from a life of sin and prepared their hearts for whatever God had in store for them next. There's a very interesting passage in Luke about this that says this very thing. Look at Luke 7, verse 29 and 30. Jesus is talking, he's preaching, and there's this little parenthetical verse in the story that says, by the way, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. They had not been prepared. They had not entered that new state of preparedness. The baptism of John prepared the hearts of men to understand 
the message of Christ. But John spoke about another baptism. In Matthew 3.11, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And of course, John is talking about Jesus Christ. And a a little verse later in in Matthew 3.13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Obviously, Jesus believed that the outward act of obedience, the physical act of baptism as a sign of repentance from sin, was important. Even though he had never sinned, he said it was still proper for him to be baptized in the baptism of John. A baptism, remember, that is preparedness for the kingdom of heaven. I think the baptism of Jesus was a baptism like Elisha's. I think, the very, for one thing, it was the very first thing Jesus did in his earthly ministry. It's the, it is the baptism in which he passes from his life as a young carpenter into his life as leader of a new community for a group of people that God has given him. And at the end of his life, Jesus talks about that. He says, he talks to the Father about how he has fulfilled the responsibility for the new community that God gave him at the beginning of his ministry. Look at John 17, 6 through 9. Jesus is praying at the end of his ministry. I have revealed you, Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. You see, we are the new community that was given to Jesus as the new leader. Now, John said Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, right? But the baptism with the Holy Spirit did not occur until after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. We know that, you know, from Acts, okay, and from from Jesus telling them the Holy Spirit's going to come after I leave. But while he was here on earth, it appears that Jesus baptized people with water. Aside from the fact that Jesus said the Holy Spirit wouldn't come till he left, which is in John 16, 7, how do we know that Jesus baptized with water while he was here on earth and not with the Holy Spirit and fire? Look at John 3, verse 22 through 26. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. And an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you, 
you know, that Jesus on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Okay? Obviously, the topic here is water baptism. John's on one side of the river, Jesus is on the other. While Jesus was here on earth, he prepared people to enter the kingdom of heaven with a baptism of repentance, a baptism of water. That also explains the emphasis in lots of Jesus' sermons that he gave. Jesus talked constantly about the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. It ties directly with John's comment that the kingdom of heaven was near. It's obvious that while Jesus was on earth, both John and Jesus were preparing people to enter the kingdom of heaven, which was imminent, close, but had not yet arrived. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And of course, who could forget the words of Jesus' prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus said that prayer, the coming of the kingdom of heaven was a future event. So when do we enter the kingdom of heaven? When does it come? Is it going to happen after we die? Look at John 3, 5. Jesus answered Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Well, Nicodemus had the same questions we had. He said, well, if I have to be born again of water and the Spirit, how is that possible? How can I ever enter the kingdom of God? Well, we've looked at how you're baptized in water and what that means spiritually. Jesus' words bring us to the next requirement, baptism with the Spirit. During his earthly ministry, Jesus baptized with water. But after he ascended into heaven, he began to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. John said this baptism in the Spirit and in fire is a baptism that Christ brings us through, just like Moses brought the Israelites through the Red Sea. Baptism in the Holy Spirit brings us into the kingdom of heaven, into the community led by Christ. The community he prophesied was just right around the corner fixing to happen. It's a community that brings us in community that is separate from the world, but has a huge impact on the world. Matthew 13, 31 through 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in this field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows... It is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So Jesus, if you go back and you look at the kingdom parables that he told, and we're going to look, we're going to look at some next week. He makes it clear that the kingdom of heaven is here on earth now. It obviously wasn't here on earth while he, before his crucifixion. 
but was something we entered into afterwards, and we enter into it with the baptism of the Spirit. And we're going to look at that in more in-depth and more scripture related to that next week, and, and we'll finish up chapter 6 next week.